This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi everyone, my name is Amadeo Diodamo. Um, I've never been at a conference that's elegantly run, but also everyone's so elegantly dressed. It's very intimidating. It's really, really quite great. Like academics at a rave. Uh, I want to talk about screaming. Um, my voice sounds like I've been doing a lot of screaming, but I've just been on a plane for 30 hours, so I left it there. But the song I want to talk about is uh, from the Scary Monsters album. It's uh, the song It's No Game, part one. And I want to talk about in terms of the affect, like what is Bowie doing? Because I think he's doing something really remarkable um, and breaking through into new space uh, and also in involved with uh, political concepts. But uh, in, in a way that's very interesting, very specific to him. Now, if you remember this song, it's very hard to hear the lyrics. So I, won't, I won't put them up until the end. Uh, but the performance is overwhelming. And that's what I want to focus on. But here's what the song seems to be about to me. Uh, it seems to be about a guy who's in a room maybe, and there's probably like a TV playing, and on the TV there's, there's visions or, or uh, uh, documentaries of people being tortured or political problems in other countries, uh, being shot against targets, people who shot there, they're getting ears broken by fascists. And the main person who's singing the song, presumably Bowie, is just, just horrified. I don't know how you guys feel about this. I, I always find this song just so fascinating and strange, and I want to, talk a little bit about the, the uh, very briefly, about the history of screaming in music. Um, and I'll st I won't have time to go in a, a very big way, but we'll talk about how it comes into popular music, generally attributed to Kansas City Blues in the US, where you had performers who in the 30s, 40s, 50s were performing with big bands, saxophones, horns, and performing to audiences that were notoriously excited and loud. And so you had to kind of scream, they sort of have to yell slash scream the lyrics out over uh, their own band and the audience to be heard. And this became a performance style that affected the actual songwriting and, and really became central to what the blues has become. So uh, that particular uh, idea of sort of yelling, screaming, I think we all know it comes into popular music in a, in a, a big way. I find this fascinating that this is happening in popular culture at a time when uh, we're also getting a sense of the um, the need for certain groups, African Americans or young American adolescents, to find their voice and to communicate clearly, right? I'm here and I've got something to say, and what I've got to say is important. And if you think about screaming in music, it often has this role, right? In fact, probably most often, which is that you just give emphasis, whether you're Jim Morrison or whoever, I've got some, t I'm in love with you, or don't you talk to me like that. There's an intentionality about it, and it's definitely connected to the lyrics, right? It's a form of communication that's very direct and is about, you know, really uh, getting out there and being, being heard. Now, John Lennon changes this. John Lennon uh, puts out an album in 1970. What's fascinating to me about this is that Lennon has actually uh, been doing primal scream therapy for about a year before this album comes out. And if you're not familiar with what this is, this. Uh, uh, Dr. Arthur Janoff uh, would bring people to a place where they were to scream, to get in touch with suppressed memories, uh, hidden desires, <clears throat> traumatic traumas from their childhood. Um, and Lennon 
all over this album, Lennon is, is doing these kinds of uh, vocal work. So a new thing is happening here. We're getting into a kind of intimacy, right? It's not the same as just getting your voice heard. It's about going inside yourself and finding something that is traumatically hidden, maybe even to yourself, and having it come out. You know, it has a more of a Foucaultian kind of uh, concept of performance and of investigation. And so I think that this is where we've got a big change uh, in the history of screaming. And I wanted us to think a little bit about this kind of gamut from yelling to screaming to just like breaking down, right? Because with screaming, it sort of has that risk, right? It's got this panic about it. It's got the sense that it might end up in a completely animalistic place. Now, the yelling is intentional communication, as, as I was saying, right? But screaming is kind of borderline between intentional and involuntary, you know? Maybe your passion is so big that you've lost control, right? In some sort of bacchic frenzy. Or maybe like Bowie, you're just in this painful, anxious place where you just can't, you don't know what to do anymore, and you're in, you're just, you're, you're losing it. And so I think it's important for us to think about that. Also, not only in terms of language breaking down, but in, in full breakdown, there is no longer any language, right? We're, we're just on the ground, curled up in a ball, crying, screaming, or whatever it is. And we relate to this very differently, right? When we see something, someone going through this, we stop what we're doing. We have, a, a, in a sense, an animalistic urge to help or to find out what's going to stop the problem. And this is also true in terms of performance. Uh, when you're yelling, you can yell for a whole lifetime as a performer, right? Um, opera singers do, blues, sing blues singers do it. Screaming, of course, is different. Because when yelling, you're just pushing air through the vocal cords, and so you can be heard much more deeply, right? Much more loudly, and you can do that with training. Screaming, you're taking the vocal cords, and you're crushing them down, and you're pushing the air against it. So it turns into my voice. You, you can actually cause a ragged problem there. And we know this as people, right? People scream only when they're in panic, because it can actually destroy their voice. And it's also true of performance, which is why we don't hear it very much. Lennon is starting to go there with his particular trauma, traumatic explorations, but Bowie is there too. And so I think that the, what, I, what I wanted to talk here now is the sense of the breakdown. Um, in, uh, I wrote a, uh, an essay uh, uh, on young Americans where Bowie's also having a bit of a breakdown there. That's in the, the, new, the new book uh, that Sean and Toyja are uh, editing. And I want us to just think a little bit about what breakdown is, both in uh, uh, normal communication as well as in song. This is a, a moment where we feel the performer losing it, right? He's got or she's got something to tell us about. And it's so powerful that as they're doing it or singing about it, as they're telling us or singing, they themselves find their emotions coming up very big, right? And they have trouble keep going on, right? And our hearts go out to them. I mean, our performativity, our uh, relationship with them changes uh, completely. We be, it becomes much more intimate, like Lennon when he's screaming about his mother. That we stop being able to see them in their performance, and there's the person there. Even if they're a star, and this gets very complicated with, with, with issues of performativity. But uh, this is what I find fascinating um, in general. And I think in the interest of time, I'm going to skip Beyonce. But Beyonce, but I know, but Beyonce does this actually in the 2008 inauguration of Obama. Uh, it's, on, it's an online clip if you get to see it. She sings At Last, which is an echo of Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream speech, At Last, at, you know, At Last, We're Free At Last. She does this soul song. She does some blues techniques there, and then she starts to break down. And you know, I don't think you have to be an American to find it so moving. You understand the experience that she's having, and it has this large, larger political context. 
Um, so we've seen this in a lot of things. We see this in Oscar acceptance speeches, performance, right, when people overcome. So it can be performed as well. But I want us to think about what happens there and this different relationship that happens, a sense of time and also a sense of interiority of the performer that just kind of opens out to us, right? Usually connected with intimacy, as with Lenin, as with um, uh, our UN representative who's overcome whatever he's seen. But it isn't always. And that's where we get back to Bowie, where Bowie's doing something, I think, brand new in popular music. We often talk about how Bowie takes from high art and he brings, he's trying to bring popular music up into a realm of high art. So I want to just remind us that we've got folks in the 20th century who have been working on the voice as well as working on going inside into a non-vocal place to, to, uh, to you know, find new things to say that are going to change our relationship to the audience, right? Artaud is the most famous example. So I think he's definitely influenced on Bowie in this particular song. Um, we won't have time here to go into what, what Beckett is doing here, but I think Beckett's performances, uh, his techniques, and his issues of, also his issues of erasure. Um, Beckett is very abstract. We don't often have characters. We have tone and we have anxiety. There's definitely something there in terms of an influence for Bowie in this song. And don't forget that Beckett's uh, an influence on The Elephant Man, right? Which is always actually being interviewed for it while he's recording Scary Monsters. Again, a story about a person who has trouble communicating in a very crippled voice uh, about the pain of the world that's out there that he can't quite cope with. So a little bit similar to the narrator or the, the person in It's No Game. Brecht and Lenya, I think we won't have time to go into that, but they're definitely there um, in terms of making a ragged voice, an ugly voice that, that takes us into a new space. But what I wanted to focus on last year, in the interest of time, is uh, we'll go into the lyrics now of It's No Game. So he's erased in the context of this song any reference actual political thing, right? It's just all that bad stuff in the world, right? It's kind of an infantile reaction to it that I think, I don't mean infantile in a bad way, but that gut reaction, lower brain, which I certainly have that feeling like, oh no, I don't want to hear anything more about this or about that. It's a guy who's just fed up and wants to push it away with his voice and just curl up in a ball. So he's erased himself. <clears throat> Unlike Lenin, we don't have that intimacy. And yet he's very immediately in the moment we know nothing about the politics. He's also giving us no information about the person who's experiencing this kind of crippling thing that's happening, right? And that's really, I think, unique to Bowie. So I just wanted to point this out. I think it's a very interesting song for me because it, it moves, shows the moment where the personal is the political. And we're finding another way to talk about our anxieties without actually speaking about it in language, but through affect. Another great invention of David Bowie. Uh, with, and, and taking us to the border of breakdown. Thank you very much. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.